thought today, since uh, we have a large group of our folks at the retreat, uh, going over the topic of being peacemakers, and since that's found in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, I thought we would just kind of circle around to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, which talks about peacemaking. It's not the same sermon we did over uh, probably over a year ago, but it's... Uh, because as you know, there's probably, there's so, the Word of God is very rich, and there's many different angles we can take to that. So if we can get into the, uh, the... There we go. So before we get into it, though, probably if you've been around church for a while, you've noticed that sometimes people uh, will make small mistakes when it comes to things of faith. I'm talking about these are just very small. For example, uh, a lot of people will pronounce the book of Revelation as the book of Revelations as if there's an S on the end of it, but there's not. It's just called the book of Revelation, because it's one revelation. Another common one is the book of Psalm. Did you know the book of Psalm is just Psalm? It's not Psalms. I always make that mistake, because I figure there's lots of Psalms there, so it should be plural, right? But for whatever reason in the English, it's not in the plural. It's just Psalm. Uh, my dad, I think I've shared with you before, my dad used to insist that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, was found in the Bible. And uh, we used to go back and forth on that until finally he read through the whole Bible a couple times. He goes, I guess it's not in there. And I told him, it's not in there. One, it's bad theology. And secondly, it came from Benjamin Franklin. It didn't come from a prophet or the Gospels. So, uh, so you know, little things like that. There have been some interesting printing mistakes throughout history. For example, in 1631, when they were printing the King James Bible, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the word not was left out of the verse, which changed thou shalt not commit adultery to thou shalt commit adultery. And that uh, Bible was recalled. Most of the copies were destroyed. There's still 11 copies available. And it's actually got a, a nickname. It's called the Wicked Bible. <laughs> and for whatever reason, you can go to some, uh, a museum in Branson, Missouri, which is like, why Branson, Missouri? And there's a copy of the Wicked Bible. And there's also one that in a few decades later, something similar happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Again, the word not was dropped out. You kind of wonder if someone was trying to play games with folks. And instead of the Bible saying, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, instead it read, know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that became known as the unrighteous Bible. <laughs> So in the retreat that the, we're having this weekend, it's one on peacemaking, and obviously the main text that is being used there is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, which says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And this one is often misquoted or even misunderstood as to be something to say, Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they will be called the sons of God. And there's a significant difference in the understanding between something that someone or something that is a peacekeeper versus someone or something that is a peacemaker. And so we're going to be looking into the differences between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper as we, look, as we go into the scripture today and as we go through the sermon. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I was a child of the 70s and the 80s, and whenever I heard about peacekeepers... Uh, I tended to think of this. Oh, 
This was a missile system called the Peacekeeping Missile System that was a big deal in the 1980s. And so when I think of peacekeeper, I think nuclear weapons. <laughs> and I think there's something to that because the idea between the peacekeeper system was that, you know, peace was kept through the fear of being annihilated. You know, there, was, there used to be this, uh, this philosophy within the defense called MAD, which is very appropriate, which stood for Mutually Assured Destruction. And as we've gone into this, of course, with this war with Ukraine, one of the things that people are extremely nervous about, right, is the, the possible use of a nuclear weapon. And so when I was a kid, when, this was in the news a lot, the Peacekeeper Missile System. And unfortunately, though, as inappropriate or weird as it might sound that a system like this of destruction would be called the Peacekeeper, keeping peace through fear and intimidation can also be a family dynamic. It can be found within your workplace. It can even be found in churches, where dysfunction within the church is kept under control by an even greater fear of more dysfunction or more intimidation. And when you have this compounding dysfunction going on within families, and if you have it going on within your workplace, you know, often Germans will often talk about bullying going on, you know, in your workplace where intimidation and fear is in place to kind of keep things, if someone feels like that's what they need to do to keep the ball rolling forward, and that's a very toxic place to have to work. And also in churches, it can happen. You can have spiritual abuse going on from leadership. Okay, it can be toxic, and they can, be considered, they can think of themselves, we're keeping the peace by intimidating dysfunction to stay in its place. And this is not peace. This is just a compounding dysfunction, which eventually leads to a complete breakdown at some point, either of the organization or of the people involved in it. And so this is why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. This is essential for us to understand, especially as we're involved in, as believers, what we are called to. We're not called to try and keep peace. We're called to make peace. And so as God's kingdom, we need to be deliberate about waging peace, that we have to be involved in it. It's a proactive thing. See, the term peacemaker indicates that something needs to be made. It indicates that there's something that is lacking and that we have to put our input into it to make it. And it's important to understand this because you cannot preserve something you don't have. There's no real point, for example, of having some elaborate security system to guard all your valuables when in truth you live in poverty. And yet this is sometimes what we try and do as, as churches. We try and have all these systems in place to keep a peace that really isn't there. That's there maybe only in name only, but it's not really there in the place of heart and spirit. And so we are called to be peacemakers, that we have to go out and make it. We have to wage peace. And I've had a significant number of Christians in my life who thought they were living in the richness of Christ, only to show through their actions or inactions that that richness was an illusion. And it wasn't an illusion from Jesus. It was an illusion from that person who was unwilling to honestly assess their own role, be it in their family, or be it in their workplace, or be it in the church. However, I have to tell you, this whole idea of peacemaking is complex and it is difficult. It's not something that can be approached in a simplistic way. I, I, I wish it could be. 
I wish it was easy enough that we could all just as believers or as brothers and sisters that we could approach one another, point out those areas where our dysfunction is causing disunity or our dysfunction is causing a toxicity, and we would all just go, oh, thank you for showing me that. I'm going to immediately change that. Wow. I appreciate how you spoke into my life to bring me around so that I stopped being a person of division and toxicity. Unfortunately, I have never had anyone respond that way. No matter how gentle you approach it, or no matter how softly you approach it, we struggle as human beings with the idea that we might be a cause of disunity, or we might be the cause of toxicity. And so it's complex. It's also complex because it very rarely are things a one-way situation. Usually the toxicity or dysfunction goes more than one way. And frankly, it's not usually just a two-way thing. It's like a multi-headed thing with like an octopus. It's going all kinds of different directions with all kinds of different levels and all kinds of different expectations because we all bring different things to the table. I always have told folks, kind of the miracle of IBCD is that we actually get along with one another because we don't have a whole lot in common. But maybe that's our saving grace, too, that we don't have a lot of high expectations that we all have everything in common. We just focus on Jesus, and when something goes sideways that kind of we think is weird or maybe even offensive. I think a lot of people in IBCD have a very forgiving heart because we give each other the benefits of the doubt. We say, well, I don't know why they did that or said that, but you know, maybe it's cultural, you know? And we just kind of use that and we move on. And I think that's great. I think it's great that we focus more on Christ than upon the little things that bug, it, bug each other. However, I have to tell you, in my 11 years at IBCD, and some of the folks who have been here quite a while too, yeah, it's not as though we haven't had our toxic dysfunction at IBCD. It's not as though we haven't had to deal with some pretty hard issues. And we continue to have to deal with some hard issues. And peacemaking is probably one of the most difficult things that I have found that we are called to. We are all called to it. But having it work out in, a, in the way that we would all love it to see, you know, where everything, unity is restored, relationships are built, they're stronger, we're moving on together with a, with a, a unified you know, movement toward the future, that is, that is unfortunately quite rare. Because we have a hard time seeing past ourselves. And the first step really in being a peacemaker is understanding who you are. Understanding who, what you bring to the table, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. Understanding the places where you might have a tendency to overreact or underreact or do something that isn't quite the perfect response in that situation. To understand your weaknesses. I, I certainly know my weaknesses. That doesn't make me perfect, though. Understanding your weaknesses is only the first step. Then the second step is to actually try and do something about it. And this, I can confess to you that I have the same struggles that any of you have. I, for example, as you, many of you know, I, I don't like confrontation. I have a tendency to let a dysfunction go for a long time before I will actually address it because I don't want to address it. I don't want to go through all the, the pain of potentially losing a friendship or the pain of losing someone that comes to IBCD or just, you know, it's uncomfortable. I don't enjoy it. But if we're not willing to do the work of peacemaking, then all we end up doing is being a, a group of folks that talk about how much we love one another, talk about how much we want to be disciples of Jesus. But when things get rough, that talk proves to be just that, talk. 
And so it's important for us, as every member of the church, every part of the body of Christ, to understand that the role of peacemaker is something that we are totally all involved in. And to be involved in it at the level that you can. And I want to talk a little bit about that, this idea of how do we do this? How do we wage peace? And what is the level? What do I mean, like what level you're at? Well, there's a book that I really would recommend if you want to, to read, uh, probably I think the best book written on peacemaking is called this, The Peacemaker by a guy named Ken Sand. And everything that I pretty much know about peacemaking comes from this book. It's a very thorough book on the concept of being a peacemaker within the church, within the family, within the world around you. And I would certainly recommend that you get it and you read it. Because there's different levels of, of what it comes to being a peacemaker. And he calls the first level a culture of disbelief. In churches and in families and in individual lives, a culture of disbelief is the one they don't, it's not that they don't believe in Jesus. They just really don't believe that the church or them or they as individuals can do anything about the toxic dysfunction in their lives. They're kind of at a place of having no hope. Uh, you know, they, they'll, say, they'll, one, they'll say praise Jesus, they trust him with their salvation. But when it comes to really healing places of, of dysfunction or toxicity, when it comes to the place of making peace, they just really don't see it. They have it within themselves to do it, and they really don't see it. The church has anything to offer in it. This is called the culture of, dis of disbelief. The second level that you see in people's lives and in churches is the culture of faith. Now, these folks understand that God does give a peacemaking command, and he does give promises, and they believe that his commands and promises are relevant to their life and to today's church. They know that the churches should be able to make peace between themselves, the believers within their local church. They know that they should also be able to make it within their families. They should, but they just don't know how. They don't feel equipped. They'll say, yeah, these things should be able to happen, and I believe they could happen. I just don't know how. How do I do this? Because the way that we often do it as Christians is very shallow. I'll say something to like, uh, Tobias, Tobias, sorry I offended. You forgive me? Well, Tobias doesn't really want to deal with the whole issue. You know, he's like, ugh, you know, oh, this guy's always doing this. Sure, I forgive you. Okay, great. Da, da, da. We're good now. That tends to be how Christians deal with issues of dysfunction within the church. We don't want to go very deep, you know? We just don't want to, do, neither side really wants to deal with it. I want to just kind of say, we good? I want, to I want to hear from you, yes, we are. If you say no, we're not, then I'm like, oh, you're supposed to say, yes, we are. You know, it's kind of like that question, that, hey, how's it going? We don't really expect the person to say, well, this week, boy, I had a really difficult time. We're like, no, 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 no. You're just supposed to say, fine, and then move on. What are you doing trying to be authentic? We don't want that. Keep it nice and shallow and inauthentic. So that's level two. Level three is called the level of transformation. This is when people really decide they're going to put off the worldly ways of resolving conflict, which often have to do with intimidation or kind of bullying, and will take steps to learn how to resolve conflict biblically. And so these are folks that are willing to start to learn. And the churches, churches that are relatively healthy have... Some folks that are in this place, not everyone's in this place, but churches that are relatively healthy have some folks that feel somewhat equipped. They believe it's important to be 
proactive in this peacemaking thing. And so they will, they will get involved. And in my opinion, most churches hover between levels two and three. Most churches are somewhere in that they, they either think that this should happen, but they don't know how, but, or you have a small minority that has been kind of trained in doing something like this. In the book, he talks about level four is a culture of peace. These are churches that are full of people who are eager and able to resolve conflict and reconcile relationships in a way which demonstrates the power and love of Jesus Christ. They don't see conflict as something to fear. They see conflict as an opportunity to exercise our faith. And churches that have this understanding and they have this equipping, they don't they are willing to go into it and they know how to approach one another and how to receive correction so that it doesn't become a defensive thing or an accusatory thing. It becomes a genuine resolution of issues. This is rare. It's wonderful when it happens, but it is rare. And level five is the culture of multiplication. These are the folks that... They not only delight in that they can uh, make peace within their families and churches, they feel like they're equipped to do so, and there's enough people that can, they understand the process, but then these folks are willing to take it out and share with others. These are the true peacemakers, because they not just make peace in their local church, then it goes out of the local church to make peace in other churches and to give them uh, the tools that are necessary. When I was in Oregon, I've shared with you just briefly, well, I've shared with you in length at one time, but just, you know, we had the, our music minister decided not to pay his house payment because he didn't owe the man anything, and he moved into the church because he got kicked out of his house. The man disagreed that he didn't owe him anything, and he moved into the church with six kids. And it wasn't a church building like this where you can be separated out. It was just one building, and we had no idea how to handle this, no idea as leadership, none of us. We wanted to love but what we ended up doing with our love is, was enabling a dysfunction. And this guy and his family ended up staying in the church building for five months. And the tension just ratcheted up every day. And I wasn't very well equipped to know how to deal with this. I, was, I would stay in my office afraid to even leave my office to go to the toilet because I was afraid I was going to run into his wife who was living in the church and so angry at her husband, but she didn't dare admit that, so then she just decided to turn that around and be angry at everyone else that was in the church building because being in the church building was an invasion of her home in her mind. It was nuts. And we actually got help from another church, a church that was kind of on this level five. They came in and they helped us walk through that situation. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff that happens. You know, that's kind of an extreme thing. But these sorts of things happen on different levels. You know, people that we're trying to work with, people that we want to, to work in the kingdom of God with, something will happen, and there's just, it begins to get rough. So in my opinion, I think IBCD is kind of on the bell curve here. You know, we have a lot of folks in, in level two, not too many in level one. Most folks in IBCD are more hopeful than that. Uh, we have a lot of folks that believe that this should happen within the church, it should be possible within the church, but don't really feel very equipped for it. And then you have folks kind of on level three. We do have some folks that are equipped. But that doesn't make us, you know, a level four or level five church. And I'm not saying this 
to bash IVCD. I think most churches are somewhere in this range. I think actually most churches kind of shifted a little bit, bit towards one. But I think this is pretty normal. I think this is normal for a lot of Christians because being peacemakers is usually something that people see as something that leadership should do. It's not something the body should do. But the truth is, a lot of the conflict that takes place within the church isn't between leadership and the body. It's oftentimes within the body. Now, I find myself mediating, you know, conflict and things going on between folks quite often, just within the church. So it's a, it's a body thing as well. It's for all of us. And we need to take seriously this, this passage out of the book of James. And I find this passage to be, has a lot in it. It's packed into it. He says this. He's writing to this church that is struggling with peacemaking and, and keeping the peace. Because James is writing early in, early in the church, as many of you know, uh, the church is primarily Jewish. And then you had this influx of, of non-Jewish people, and the church didn't really know what to do with them. You know, do they need to become Jewish before they can become Christians? They didn't know. James was the overseer of the church in Jerusalem. And so he was kind of right in the middle of the storm of everything going on in Jerusalem. And he says this, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. So this is something we have to get through our heads, that, that what God gives us, the, 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 when Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, and when we see in his life how he made peace, how he was willing to approach people that hated him, that he was willing to, to talk with people that disagreed with him, that what we see in him is the, is the way God reacts to things. You know, one of the things Jesus says to, to Philip, the disciple, when Philip says, show us the Father, and that would be enough, Jesus says, Philip, don't you know that after all these years when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? And basically, if you want to know how God reacts to things, how God feels about issues, just look at how Jesus responded to things. Because that's what Jesus is saying. How does God respond to... Uh, Religious judgmentalism? Well, look at how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. How does God deal with people caught in sin? Well, look at how Jesus dealt with the, the woman at the well and also the woman caught in adultery. Look at how he treats Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You want to see how, how Jesus, what makes Jesus happy or what, what he finds important. Look at what he talks about when he says, you know, you, you should care for those that, that are the weak. You should care, you know, the, the poor you'll have with you always. You need to care for them. Next, in two weeks, he's going to talk about, there's the parable that talks about the sheep and the goats. And how does he differentiate the sheep and the goats? Well, the sheep did what he would want them to do. You know, those who were hungry, you fed them. Those who were thirsty, you gave them drink. Those who were naked, you clothed them. Those who were in prison, you visited them. Blessed are you. And the goats were the ones that said, well, we know you too. And Jesus said, yeah, but you didn't know me. And you didn't reflect my character in your life. So when we, what we see from Jesus is pure. And if we just follow his example, we're 90% of the way there. Then we have to get out of our own way. That's the other part. Then he says, Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. These are the characteristics of someone willing to be a peacemaker. He says, Peacemakers who sow in peace... Raise a harvest of righteousness. If you sow in peace, a harvest of righteousness will come. Then he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So one of the first steps of peacemaking is really understanding who you are. Where do you stand in this? Are you a person that is willing to be peace-loving, to be considerate, to be submissive? And that's not just women being submissive, which oftentimes that's how that's expressed. Actually, you know, the scripture, when it talks about marriage, it's something that's often overlooked when they go about women submit to husbands as to the Lord. The verse right before that says, submit to one another in love. That if you're going to be in this relationship, you need to understand what's important to you and what's important to your partner. And then you work in love together. There are things in my life that Cindy, it's more important to Cindy than it is to me. So if Cindy wants to do that, I'll say, fine, I will submit because it's more important to her. I guess at the end of the day, when there's a big decision that has to be made and we're both in a place of, you know, we actually, we've never gotten to a place where we're just completely polar opposites. We work it out and we work it out and we work it out. But because I have a certain responsibility, she'll eventually allow me to make that decision. But let me tell you, I certainly don't abuse that because over the years I've learned my wife is pretty smart. And there's a lot that I can just, you know, my life goes a lot easier when I listen to her a lot of times. And when she says, this is the better decision, if I look into it and I don't see any other reason why not, it's like, okay, and then should we do it? And you know what? Most of the time it turns out to be the better decision. But it's this idea of being humble, full of mercy, bearing that good fruit, impartial, sincere. You're not just, peacemakers aren't just trying to get their way. They're trying to forge something that isn't there, forge trust, forge friendship, forge a closeness. And if we want to be a people as individuals and as a church that want to change the culture of the church to reflect the character of Jesus Christ, then we have to act within the character of Christ. I had a seminary professor one time say, you know, it's just kind of one of these throwaway lines that I've never forgotten. He said, you cannot do the will of God and act outside the character of God at the same time. Especially if you're a Christian. As a Christian, you can say, well, the Pharaoh wasn't, okay. But as a Christian... You cannot do the will of God, but be acting outside the character of God at the same time. And this is what we do sometimes. We think we're going to do the will of God. I'm going to promote this thing. I'm going to promote this theology. I'm going to promote this church. I'm going to do, you know, this ministry. But we can get so focused on what we want out of that that we step outside the character of God. And, we, and when we're in this really ironic and dysfunctional place of trying to do the will of God, but acting outside of the character of God. And this causes within families and churches a lot of conflict because it just doesn't make sense, but we do it all the time. And I say we, just kind of human beings. And, you know, and this is where it can be dysfunctional. And every church has issues, and we have to be willing to look at it. We have to deal with the fact that we have weaknesses. Again, I told you my weakness, I don't like to deal with stuff. I'm a, I'm a great peace faker. Especially in my early, early Christianity, I was a peace faker. And you know what we do? We end up taking our dysfunctions and we baptize them and we call them blessed. So I took my, my, my lack of willingness to confront, baptized it, and called it patience and long-suffering. Or we take, we take our, uh, our, our anger and we baptize it and we say a willingness to confront. <laughs> You know, we have a tendency to take our weaknesses and baptize them. And I say baptize them, you know what I mean? Just 
try and sanctify them to make something that was evil into something good. We do this all the time. And so we need to be aware of ourselves. You need to be aware of those places that we have a tendency to, to take the, we baptize things that are dysfunction, and then we bring it into the church, and we act like it's a blessing. And for a while, maybe it is, and other people even see it as a blessing. Oh, you're so patient. You know, you're so kind in all this. Yeah, that's great. Until it gets really bad, then you realize, wait a minute. That's not patience or kindness. That's cowardice. And it's really what has to happen with the individual in the church. You have to come to a place where you just say, enough. I've had enough of this. I've had enough of the fakery in my life. I've had enough of it in my family. I've had enough of it in my church. I've had enough of it in my work. I've had enough of it. And now I want to approach it biblically. I want to be equipped. I want to change old habits. I want to get that perspective of becoming peacemakers in our own life. But this proactive part, this is where we struggle. We struggle in being proactive. What we'll tend to do is we'll wait until there's a huge, huge crisis. And then the crisis will motivate us to move. But the problem is, by the time the crisis is huge, you've just got that. You've got a huge crisis. I deal with this in marriage counseling all the time. Most times, and I'll give you this formula, and, and people sometimes think that I've been spying on them and reading their email when I give you this formula, but this is kind of how the dynamic between women and men work, regardless of culture. This is just a man-woman thing. Women will oftentimes know there's something out of whack with the relationship, especially when communication breaks down. They will feel this first. And they will start trying to get help. They'll actually start talking to their husband, kind of dropping hints subtly at first. Maybe we need to talk to somebody. And of course, the guy's like watching the football game. Uh, we don't need to talk to anybody. And then she'll, she'll, drop, she'll start dropping hints that are not so, much, so not so subtle. You know, We really need to talk to somebody. We need to get help. And then the guy can get defensive. Why? Is there something wrong with us? And if she has the courage to say yes, very often he will disagree. No, there's not. It's not our problem. It's your problem. And this will often go on for about two years. And this, this is the formula. I'm just telling you what the formula is. And the woman gets, gets more and more after the guy, and, she's, and he starts calling her, you're nagging me all the time. What he does is he withdraws further and further away into, I call it his cave. Maybe it's a literal place he runs and hides, like the office, or like my grandfather used to have the den, which was kind of like the man room. Or emotionally, just kind of withdraws. And then things go quiet. She stops going after him. And he thinks all is good. Then he wakes up one day and she's gone. Because in that time that she went quiet, she realized he's never going to listen to me. Things are never going to change. So she begins to close her heart, because women's hearts are like super open to their spouses, until they just get hurt and wounded and ignored over and over and over and over and over again, about two-year period. Then it begins to close up because she begins to know that she needs to defend herself. And she needs to prepare herself to do the hard work of getting out of this relationship. And so she leaves. Then I get a phone call from the panicked husband. And, I, and that's no joke. I've heard this many times. I had no idea this was coming. I don't know why she did this. What caused this? And then they'll come to counseling, and by then the crisis isn't something broken. It's something shattered. 
And the woman's heart, at this point, she's defending herself. It's like a stone. And what's going to happen, I tell the man this, you're going to have to reestablish trust because you crushed it by ignoring her. You're going to have to reestablish communication because you crushed it. You shattered it. You're going to have to reestablish the intimacy in the relationship, not sexual intimacy, but just the, the intimacy of sharing heart, mind, and soul. And you're going to have to be patient enough for her to open up her heart and trust you again. And this is going to take time. And you know what the tragedy is that I've found over the years? Most guys will insist upon their right because she is to submit to him that she should respond to him with trust and openness and intimacy right now. And if she doesn't, then he leaves and feels very justified in the whole thing. And this is why divorces happen in the church. It's not a mystery. It's the same reason why divorces end up outside the church. When we break that place of confidence and trust and we let the crisis get out of hand, it's very difficult to build it back up. It can be built back up, but it is very difficult. Let me tell you, after 25 years of experience, very difficult when you let the crisis get that bad. Or you have the crisis with your kids that you never really spent time to, to deal with their issues. You just kind of parented by saying, sit down, shut up, because I said so, things like that. And then all of a sudden, when the kid gets a certain age and they realize they have a certain amount of autonomy, they just leave. They just leave. They don't want to talk to you anymore because you never were willing to really invest in them. And these are real-life situations. The church is the same way. We have little things that happen, little places of hurt, because we want to be kind to each other, we don't like to point out to each other when we've begun to hurt one another until it gets to a place of crisis. And then when the crisis comes, you have church splits, you have fights in the church, you have people leaving churches, you have pastors leaving churches. This is why we have to be proactive. Because we are sinful human beings, we have to be able to engage before it gets bad. This is why we're to be peacemakers. He says, blessed are the sons of God. And in that sons of God, he's not talking about the gender. He's talking about being in that place of the inheritance of the kingdom of God. We, Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, that place of making peace is so close to the heart of God. He says, you will be called the sons of God just as Jesus was called the Son of God, and he reconciled the brokenness between our humanity and our Father through his own sacrifice and his own blood. We are called to that same type of attitude. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we are called to be the ambassadors of reconciliation, reconciling an angry world with their God. So how do we do this then? Well, the place to start is really kind of decide what you believe. This Really, peacemaking comes down to the idea of, of what you believe. For example, do you believe that God has a plan for your family, for your marriage, for your church? Whatever the dysfunction may be going on in your life right now, does he have a plan? And you may say, well, I should have never married this person in the first place. I get told that sometimes. It's kind of the way out. It was a mistake. You made the commitment, and God can, will honor that commitment if you're willing to put the time into it, if you're willing to have the heart that is humble, God can make that work, even if you got married and you feel like, oh, this was the wrong person. You still made that commitment, and God can still honor that. So what do you believe? Is there a plan for you? Or does God look at your life and go, I don't know? 
Everyone else I have a plan for, but when it comes to you, hmm? is that what you think? If not, then you have to also then decide, was God right? Does he know what he's doing, actually? Does he, is, God, is, is God just kind of like, oh, my hands are tied? Is this the God that created the universe? He can create the universe, put every planet into motion, spin the entire galaxy around. But when it comes to your situation, God's like, woo, too big for me. Because if you think that, then you honestly believe that you're the center of the universe and somehow bigger than God. And then the third thing you need is you have to say, was he right to even have you there? Is this place and time, this, this, this dysfunction that's come up or this conflict that's come up, is this an opportunity for growth? Or is it, again, just God being out of control? Sin is bigger than the Lord. Be sure, sin does affect the church, but is sin bigger than God? No. Thank you, Marcus. <laughs> Sin's not bigger than God. Sin's already been dealt with, actually, in the cross of Christ. It's just, do we allow it to have a new life by not acknowledging the fact that sin has been crushed by the cross of Christ? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. I would encourage you, if you're in a place right now, if, if what you've been hearing, you're like, well, this kind of applies to me in some ways, and I don't feel all that equipped, I would encourage you to get that book that I showed, The Peacemaker by Ken Sand. It's a good book, and if you want to get together, we can read it together, or we can discuss it. I'd be more than willing to do that. It doesn't mean that it's going to make everything all of a sudden all right. Reading a book doesn't necessarily change things. Reading a book gives you some knowledge. But it's really your willingness to submit to what God has you do as you get that knowledge is going to change you. But it's, it's probably the best one I've, I've read about the biblical role of peacemaking. And that is a role that if you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, being a peacemaker is one of the many areas that you're to grow in. Because it's, what, when you're call, it's one of the things you're called to be. Peacemaker. For they will be called sons of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the places that you look into our lives in very uh, straightforward ways, and you tell us you know, what is necessary in order to walk in that relationship with you, to walk in your character, to walk within your will, and, and Lord, may we take it to heart that as a church and as individual believers that want to be your disciples, that we cannot do the will of God while acting outside the character of God at the same time, that we need to be within your character. We need to understand what that character is. And Lord, I pray that, you know, even just trying to talk about peacemaking today as, you know, trying to cover several angles, it's still so much deeper because there's always hurt that's involved too, which gets in the way. There's also, uh, there's just all sorts of other emotions that can get in the way of, of being peacemakers. And it's not an easy thing, but Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to keep trying because it can also be a discouraging thing when it just doesn't seem to work for whatever reason. And ours isn't to wonder why things work and why things don't work. Ours isn't the place to point fingers and say, well, it didn't work because they weren't willing to do it. It's just our place to follow you and your character, to trust you. So, Lord, we pray you help us all. Because I think that the area of me being peacemakers and not liking confrontation and all the things that get in the way of being peacemakers is pretty common with most of us. 
I don't think any one of us is uniquely dysfunctional when it comes to making peace. I think most of us are pretty much in the same place. Help us to look at ourselves, Father. You warn it, you know, you tell us before you take the plank out of you know, the speck out of your brother's eye, take the plank out of your own. Help us to be willing to examine our own lives. May we have the prayers of like King David's heart. Search me out, O Lord. If there's anything in me that you is displeasing to you, remove it from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Cast not your spirit from me. May we take these kinds of prayers and, and work with ourselves first, and then maybe we can approach one another in the place of true reconciliation and love. I do thank you that IBCD is one of, uh, it's a unique place. And Lord, I do thank you for the unity and the, and the good heart that is in the church. For the most part, it's still a church with fallen folks, including myself. But Lord, we can always get better. And may we be proactive in this place to seek to know your character and your will so that we can do your will within your character. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.